This is like that scene in The Matrix. Now, you can take the red pill, spend the rest of your life jacking off, crying into your chai tea green latte, or whatever. Or you can take the blue pill. Or was it the red pill? Anyway, take the other <laughs> pill and quit me in a cup. <laughs> Hello again, friends, and welcome along to another very special episode of Have You Seen This? As we stand on the precipice of cinemas opening around the world, I can almost taste those delicious new filmies waiting to give me their tasty little morsels. Joining me, as always, the co-creators <laughs> and indeed co-conspirators of this little podcast. The Lunar Lovegood and the Alotta Vagina of the Movie Podcast Universe, the dynamic <laughs> duo of Breen and Mercer. How you doing, everyone? You all all right? Very good, thanks. I'm 100% bleeping out that C-bomb you just dropped. <laughs> and here to answer the question of, do we have a guest this week? Of course we've got a guest this week, creator and host of the wonderful 90 Minutes or Less Movie Fest podcast, Sam Clements. Sam, thanks for joining us. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. So many film references were dropped in the last minute of podcasting. <laughs> you are welcome. It's like a delicious movie soup. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all here, present and correct. So let's get on with the podcast, shall we? We ended episode 13 with this question, so I'm going to start 14 with the same one. At the 1994 awards, how many Oscars did Schindler's List win? And for a bonus point, how how is this coincidental to the film? We haven't had a single person enter in a suggestion for this. We've gone from our highest oh. response ever <laughs> with Breen's really easy question last week to there you uh, go. last episode to this. All about engagement. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Breen, I believe our audience have more intelligence. So, you know. The Schindler's List is quite a choice movie for especially this time of year. You know, summer's coming. We're all feeling good. And then, bam, Schindler's <laughs> List. <laughs> yes, it's what I do. <laughs> right. Any, any guesses? I was going to guess on the coincidence, because obviously it's Spielberg. Is it the, the number of Oscars it got was... The, the amount of times he'd been nominated before he won. Nah, stop guessing your miles. Have you got a number like for the actual figure for Oscars? Do you have any ideas, Breen? I couldn't remember. Uh, eight. I'm going to say eight. <laughs> Breen, you're going higher or lower? <laughs> I'm going lower than that. Care to just pluck a number, please? Fuck me. This is scintillating uh, stuff. Seven. <laughs> seven. <laughs> Seven. Sam, any advances on seven or eight? I was, because we're in lockdown, I was reorganizing my Blu-ray shelf the other day, tidying up my Blu-ray shelf, and I alphabetized all of my Blu-rays. And I do have Schindler's List on Blu-ray, and I totally ignored the <laughs> award information it was covered in. Um, and it would be cheating now to run over and have a look at it. So I'm going to guess six. <laughs> well, Breen's got it with seven. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. And how is seven Oscars coincidental to the film? Well, I'll give my guess which was completely wrong, so no yeah. idea. Well, he saved more than seven people. Well, yes, he did indeed. But Schindler made seven lists. Oh. Where are the sequels? <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you this. The movie only refers to the first two lists that were created in 1944, known as the lists of life. And the five subsequent lists were updates to the first two, which included the names of more than one. 1,000 Jews who he recruited to work in his factory to save them. Uh, oh, wow. No. I learned something wow. today. Yeah, there you go. They know where all of the lists are, I believe, or four lists are still known to exist. One is privately owned and was put on eBay in 2013 with a reserve of £3 million and received zero bids. It's a bit much. That is a bit much. Even for Spielberg. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit much. It's a bit much. And there we go. That should so, be in a museum, surely. Two of them are, I think, no, three of them are in museums. One is privately owned. It belongs in a yep. museum. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so on to our regular show pre-start item, which is our big picks from the small screen. A highlight of two or three things we've watched or streamed outside of the two films in review. But before I start, probably one of the most anticipated VOD releases of recent times, have we all seen the four-hour Snyder Cut? Yes. Yeah. In it twice, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you intimating it's quite long, Mercer? There is a lot of slow motion in it. 24 minutes, 10% of the running time is slow motion. Oh, wow. I actually thought it would have been more. <laughs> Including a sesame seed popping off of a oh, bun I loved in it. hyper oh, slow yeah. motion. <laughs> it really reminded me of Garth and Ringy's Dark Place. Like, if we were running low at <laughs> runtime, anything that wasn't dialogue was considered for slow motion. Yeah. yeah. So what do we all think? Or is anyone going to talk about this? I figure we, we, you know, it's hugely anticipated. 
they've been it's, talking about it for a long time. So it's so much better than the Whedon cut, as it's being called. Mm. The extra detail on Cyborg and Flash was genuinely welcomed wonderful because uh, it fleshed out their characters so much more and the set pieces that they created to involve those characters so you could see what they could do i think were really well realized of course snyder likes to use his cgi in his spectacle but i think to a certain extent i think he used it quite well breaking it up into those sort of that episodic nature mm. i think worked quite well it's a much better film than the original definitely mm. there's a coherence to it that wasn't there before don't get me wrong it's still dc not quite understanding what they've got and being able to really do it properly, there's something there. You know, maybe they're starting to 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 understand things. I thought it was a significant improvement, a genuinely pleasant surprise. I mean, that wasn't hard. Yeah, who the thunk they could polish that to? It. Yeah, because the original is so god awful. Sam, you've watched it twice. That's mm. eight hours of your life. I mean, lockdown, isn't it? Um, I I um, I got really excited, sort of in a way, like just have a film project. Like I love making lists of not like Schindler, but just of films I'd like to watch, and I thought it'd be really fun maybe to watch all of the DC universe films mm. that are linked to the Snyder Cut. So starting with Man of Steel and going all the way up to Birds of Prey. And I, I just, just like to see if it added anything to my experience. So in March... I watched like those 10 original DC films, including the, the Joss Whedon version of Justice League. So I was like fully, fully primed to go all in on Snyder Cut. Mm. And, uh, and I had a blast watching it the first time. The second time, my wife has like totally tapped out. She was like, I do not care about anything DC related. I really hate, you know, that first Justice League film. But I was raving about how good it was so much. It sort of turned her around and she wanted to watch it. So I thought I'll go in again. And you know what? It holds up a second time around. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I've never really rated Snyder as a filmmaker. I think he's always been interested in visuals, composition, not in characters, mm. not in uh, narrative. But I, I get a sense that he's having some fun at last. It's a genuine fun film. And a lot of the complaints from other reviewers like surrounding the length of this film, I think they're missing the point because we knew this would be the kitchen sink edit going in. That's the point of this exercise. To see an assembly cut of a film of this calibre, it was never going to be the, the edit that was going to make cinemas in 2017 had he stayed on the project. And this is the golden age of television. People love long form narrative. We're in a lockdown. We've got time for it. I was engulfed by it. I love the fact that it's in six chapters. I think it makes it very digestible. And it was brilliant. Ezra Miller had so much fun as the Flash. The cyborg father stuff really, really worked for me. And just the end battle sequence, unlike Batman vs Superman or Man of Steel, like the action was coherent. You could tell what was going on. Mm. It wasn't just murky, oppressive, yeah. dark tones. I mean, yes, this is quite a dark tone film, but there was a sense of choreography to the fight sequences. It just hasn't existed previously. So I loved it. It's hands down the best thing he's ever done. And all he needed was four hours, apparently. That's all he needed to fix Snyder was to just say, <laughs> look, no studio interference. You can take as long as you like. And we get some character development. But yeah, I loved it. Hammond. I agree. <laughs> Considering I, I suffer really badly from concentrating on anything that's over two hours, this to me went by so, so quickly. I thought I was going to have to have several bites at it to get through, but actually I was engrossed by it from the start. I think it visually was spectacular. For me, not being the biggest DC fan on the planet, even though I've seen everything leading up to this, I really enjoyed the character development. I thought every backstory he gave every character really opened up the DC universe for me. So yeah, really enjoyed it. Amazing. Great. Nice one. Sam, what else have you been watching? I watched a lot of films, but specifically this way. I did have Snyder Cut on my list just because it was fresh in my brain. I watched the film for eight hours and then I got asked to go on to a two and a half hour long podcast to talk about it. So I feel like <laughs> I've spent over 10 hours of my life in the last week with the Snyder Cut. <laughs> but post Snyder Cut, my other film project has been to rewatch all of the James Bonds, which I started at Christmas time. And we watched Skyfall on Friday. So I'm I'm only one away now from completing a box wow. set. Wow, <laughs> nice work. Like I, I've, I've seen all of the Daniel Craig ones and I saw some of the Pierce Brosnan ones but apart from catching bits of the older ones on telly I've never really been into Bond so I, I haven't got any DVDs like I've not really sought them out unless they've been put in front of me so all of the Sean Connery's George Lazenby's one Roger Moore's watching them through properly and paying attention it was my first time and some of those Sean Connery ones they've all been restored as well so they look brand new they look amazing but the Sean Connery ones especially like really really hold up they're really yeah. dark really interesting his performance is great they go off the rails towards the end of his run which I think is the trend with most Bonds. <laughs> <laughs> you do a few good ones and then the last couple are pretty bad mm -hmm. uh, so i watched skyfall which which really holds up i remember watching it in the cinema cannot believe it's almost 10 years That's old crazy. and i was reminded uh, <laughs> of a story when skyfall was first released we made the local press in cambridge because a man was escorted out of the cinema whilst masturbating to skyfall <laughs> what <laughs> 
And that made the local press. So Keith Geller, our friend and colleague, gets a name check in the story for escorting said man out of the building. <laughs> and then the police were called to pick him up for that. So he just enjoyed Bond too much. I think too that's the, much. That's, that's so great. Uh, yeah. The headline is man masturbates in cinema during Skyfall. Authorities are appealing for information in the public for more information about him. My favorite detail in the story. I mean, it's a horrible, horrible thing to, to do and for any member of cinema staff to have to deal with, let alone the customers sat around this man. But some 200 cinema goers were present in the room at the time. Oh, God. That's awful. <laughs> All offering a tissue. <laughs> Oh, the poor Usher. Yikes. Uh, oh. I'm enjoying the Bond films, but I'm not enjoying them that much. So I recommend rewatching Skyfall. Don't recommend the rest of that. And then because of Captain America and Winter Soldier on Disney Plus, I've been watching some Marvel films. I rewatched the first Captain America. Thought it's great, really holds up. It's a proper Joe yeah. Johnston, like boy's own adventure yeah. in the tone of the Rocketeer from the director of the Rocketeer. It's got a really nice, like, period kind of drama vibe and good honest comic book action I, I would love some more sort of like world war ii set marvel totally. stuff if they ever go back mm, to that well yeah, yeah and then the other night i watched a nuts thriller called greta which had a really brief cinema run but it didn't stay around long enough for me to see it but it is now on netflix stars isabelle Huppert and chloe grace moretz and it's high camp high camp fun we were screaming at the telly uh because it's so it's not bothered with reality and it embraces that which was quite a fun watch. Um, it's from the director of The Crying Game, you know, like it's got a good filmmaker behind the camera, but they've all gone off the rails and they're, they're in this really camp thriller. But it's good fun. Would recommend it. Nice one. So I watched, it dropped on Prime, the sequel to Train to Busan, Korean film, zombie film. Train to Busan Presents Peninsula, as its full title is. It's okay. It's gone for massive action spectacle as opposed to the horror that the first one was more concentrated and concerned with sort of robbery caper that and then the zombies are there and it's it's just it loses its way which is a bit of a shame it's worth a look if you like the first one but it has issues also started watching the flight attendant which dropped on sky series with kayla kuoko from the big bang theory really good thriller enjoying watching that and then finally if you been with Sky for a while, you get this free Sky VIP thing that uh, occasionally drops some really nice things. And they did a preview screening of Minari, uh, the uh, film that yeah, we talked nice. about with Hamish. It's fantastic. I don't know when it's due to come out in the UK and what format and where. Mm. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. The performances are beautifully played, delicately directed, fantastic scripts. I haven't got a bad word to say about it. It definitely warrants all of the awards that it's been nominated for as far as I'm concerned. So your earliest convenience, Minari, is definitely definitely worth watching. Hammond, what have you watched? So I keep thinking about films that I really should have watched. And one of those films is the 1996 The People vs. Larry Flint. Never seen it before. Uh, and I, it seems to be, it's one of those films I always hear about and I've never watched. So I got around to watching it. Probably one of Woody Harrelson's all-time best performances. I thought it was fantastic. Also on Sky Cinema, something a bit more recent called Bad Education. Not the terrible Jack Whitehall sitcom, the actual film starring Hugh Jackman and Alison Janney. If you've not seen it, it's the true story, which follows Hugh Jackman playing a beloved school superintendent. But him and his staff, his friends, his relatives all become the prime suspects in the unfolding single largest public school embezzlement scandal in American history. It's great. Really good watch. Very interesting story it follows. And finally, to cap my highlights off, I watched the Indiana Jones trilogy, the original, all three from the 80s, 81's Raid of the Lost Ark, 84's Temple of Doom, and 89's last crusade which really should have been indy's last crusade but unfortunately we had crystal skull crystal what <laughs> there are only three indiana jones films <laughs> that's what i'm saying when, when we talk about jumping the shark here we go everybody <laughs> and obviously there's there's another one in the works for 2022 which i can definitely wait to watch mm, nice one less jumping the shark and more jumping the monkeys <laughs> so i watched 1994's time cop starring van damme this has got a great premise and has moments that feel really gritty like noir like almost even like blade runner but on a severe budget van damme plays a time cop in the near future where time travel has been invented and needs to be policed to prevent people from messing with the timeline as all time travel films go it needs to have a strong sense of its own rules and this just doesn't at all everything should sort of fit together but this film is more concerned with just making sure that Van Damme can do the splits at least twice. A few more passes in the script would have really helped because it just so many structural issues here and like especially some of the stilted dialogue. Van Damme's witty retorts in particular are totally tragic throughout. Like they're less quips and more just words that tumble out of his mouth. The fight sequences are good, but it's um it's very silly. It's so good. It's, it's not. 
I also watched Skyscraper from 2018. Dwayne The Rock Johnson can do absolutely no wrong in my book. He is just so bloody watchable. He's like a charisma field generator. Like viewers are pulled into his charm like a black <laughs> hole. And this is the second project he made in 2018 after Rampage. And for some reason, it's the less successful of, of the two. I don't understand why, because it's literally just as good. It's like a nailed on three star fun ride. He plays a character and pulls off the absolute impossible, a likable health and safety inspector. <laughs> I think you're right. This That was the sweet spot of like, like Dwayne Johnson is huge and has been for ages but he had this really good run of like fun like action disaster mm. films in, from 2015 where he was in things San like San Andreas and Fast and Furious yeah. 7 and then you know all the way up to Skyscraper and Rampage in, in 2018 like every film he made in that time is basically a banger and in 2019 he's in Jumanji 2 and Hobson Shaw which are really fun and Fighting with my family, which is very good. But yeah, I love Skyscraper, and I, but I do like Rampage more. Oh, really? Okay, fair enough. I thought I, I basically they were on a par. I think all the set pieces are great. There's a genuine sense of like on height and vertigo, even though the the tower is like completely CGI and does feel a bit fake in places. You definitely get a sense of vertigo as he's hanging off the edge of this building on the 200th floor, clinging onto his prosthetic leg for dear life. Uh, luckily, the crowds <laughs> gathered below can keep up to date with all the happenings because there's this giant jumbotron screen that seems to have access to the footage that the filmmakers have in some serious <laughs> fourth wall breaking so they know exactly what's going on but who cares because it's so much fun yeah skyscraper i watched it in 3d at home and i loved it it was so good great some good watching there now talking about disappointing rewatches. watch this five aladdin three and zombie Girl. just nonsense four, five, four. Five, five. some dude got stuck with a sword of the music totally a mess three. My final one, Ubi Halloween. Please avoid this god-awful piece of shit. Why would you watch it? You know it's going to be shit. Have you liked anything you've watched? Oh. So, it's over to you, Ben, for our box office refund. And there might actually be some film news right, this week. I'll tell you what there is. Some bloody box office news, mate. Because Godzilla vs. Kong has a monster $122 million overseas debut. And sets a record for the... You shut your mouth right now. <laughs> <laughs> it sets the record for the start of Hollywood during this post-pandemic. Basically, it's, it's the highest grossing film since the pandemic begun. Warner Brothers legendary pitches Godzilla vs. Kong has set a new benchmark. When it comes out in the States, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that does, because obviously it'll be released on HBO Max at the same time. And just encouraging, isn't it, for when we reopen over here? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's nice to hear that the desire to watch two giant monsters smashing the shit out of each other <laughs> um, is appealing to people all across the world and getting people back into cinemas. <laughs> Uh, people said Tenet would be the saviour of cinema, but no, it's Godzilla. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because it almost was like Legendary Pictures wasn't that bothered by this one. They've kind of given up on their MonsterVerse franchise. But yeah, I think it's great. And it's like, it's a film that should be seen on the big screen. It's two giant monsters. You can't watch that on your 32-inch screen at home. It just won't work. Talking of cinemas opening in the UK, Curzon have released some interesting news about their potential reopening plan. The 21 Strong Cinema Chain has revealed that they might start to introduce vaccine-only screenings. Philip Natchbull has said, we are trying to think about how to make our customers comfortable and how our brand should be best reflected by offering flexibility. He's worried that having vaccine-only passports for pubs, clubs, and other venues will be a bit discriminatory. So he's just trying to think of a way to keep everyone happy, I guess, and safe. This is really interesting. I don't think it's actually going to happen, but... What do we think about this? There are so many ways that this is going to fall down. Guy, yeah. just stop. Just stop now. He should jump a fucking shark, right? Stop. So, right, I want to watch a film with my parents. They're vaccinated. I'm not. What are our choices? Do they come into the screen with me and risk getting the infection? Or I'm not allowed in the screen with them. If I'm working as a, as a cinema employee that hasn't been vaccinated, am I allowed to go in and check the vaccine-only screen? Yeah. I think it was a statement made in haste without any thought behind it, it is the way it comes across to me, because it can't. It, there's, there's no way you can do this. How can you expect cinema management teams and cinema staff to police this for a start? At the moment, I mean, I've, I'm very lucky. I've had my first jab. And you get your card. You could fake those. You know, people could just come in with something and go, you can't say, oh, well, that's not a valid card. How are we supposed to know? It's impossible. So, and like you say, it discriminates against all of the younger age people. The the majority of cinema goers in 15 to 25, 15 to 35 group, it discriminates against all of those because none of them, unless they've got an underlying condition, are eligible at this stage for the jab. Whilst with the rollout's going very, very well, you're losing your core audience. And how do you set up your ticket sale systems as well? You, you can't say, oh, well, We'll have a full screening for this show, but we can only do 50% here. The systems aren't set up to be able to differentiate between that. I just, logistically, I think it's, it's, it was a statement made in haste without thinking about what's going on behind it. 
and it, it can't work. It can't happen. I, I mean, yeah, all of the things I said, it just feels like it's really discriminatory. And even like thinking about employees at the cinema, like you would have to make sure all of the staff working that day are vaccinated. As an employer, you cannot say you cannot come to work unless you've been vaccinated. At the moment, a lot of our employees won't be able to be vaccinated because of ages. Um, you know, so it's it just feels like it's very it's not been thought through. And maybe like Paul was saying, it's probably just something made in haste that sounded like a good idea. But as soon as you scrutinize it, I think the wheels come off of it there. You know, there's lots of precautions, as we've seen before, for like reopening with social distancing and, and hopefully social distancing can ease once you know more and more people have the vaccine. So, yeah, I'm keen to see how cinema goes. I don't think this is the way forward. <laughs> yeah, I think this, this is a time for sort of out the out the box thinking to try and think of ways to encourage studios to keep releasing their product, even with reduced capacity and screenings. But this is not the way to go about it. It does win of being slightly rushed out. Right, Disney have announced release dates for Cruella, Shang-Chi and more big movies, including the big one, Black Widow, which I told you was going to be delayed. It's now coming out on July the 9th on their premium format channel, as well as in cinemas. There are a lot of other sort of release dates shifts as a result of this, but I guess the big one is Black Widow. What do we think about this? I'm going to jump in because I, I mentioned this on a <laughs> comic book movie podcast the other day. <laughs> it's a shame, I think, but it's also, I'm just glad that they can actually finally get Black Widow out in, in some way shape or form and and i think it shows disney are nervous about international box office prospects you know maybe the uk will be fine come july but there'll be a lot of other countries even in europe where it won't quite be the same picture and you know these marvel films have such a high target mm. to reach it's all very businessy but i can sort of see that being the reason why they might want to do this and i think in america even which is the market they're most focused on some key states are doing really well with vaccines and others are doing less well but yeah, I just feel like they're thinking we'll have a good stab at the box office, but it won't quite make the money we, we need internationally. So let's make this available on our platform and give people the choice. It's a shame, but I can totally see why they're doing it. Obviously, Warners have done a, a deal with Cineworld now. AMC have done a deal with Universal Pictures. Will this affect whether or not those exhibitors can actually show this film? I'm worried that we'll get to a point where maybe Odeon and Cineworld and as a result, Pitchhouse won't show this because it is coming out day and day in the UK. What do we think? Breen, what do you think? It's almost impossible because everything's been thrown up in the air. You know, We didn't think that there would be any bowing from the higher ups in some of the cinema chains with regard to the window, yet that has now completely changed. Mm. The whole landscape of exhibition has completely changed in this in the course of this last year. So I have no idea. I, I don't know if, I think obviously Disney are trying to make back as much money as they can. I don't know if it smacks of them not having faith in the film. I don't know if they're they're concerned that the film isn't quite good enough to pull the there's an element of that in there as well. The next couple of years are going to be really strange in terms of exhibition because everything's up in the air and we're everyone's scrambling to try and find as they're they're all businesses, they're scrambling to find the best way to make the most money. And it's going to take at least a couple of years, I think, for them to settle on a format that works across the board and mm. uh, disney are so big that they can afford to take the risk and do what they want to do whereas i think warner brothers and universal i think they needed those contracts with amc and cineworld but hopefully they'll be buoyed by the fact that godzilla versus kong is clearly doing well in the chinese market so mm. there is money still to be made even with reduced capacity and things being released on digital platforms hopefully they'll still get the figures they they want to see so things like Shang-Chi will still come and the Eternals will still come out in cinemas only. I think it's a good test, isn't it? Like they're, they're going to have, at the moment, they've only tested their premium subscription with films that were released when cinemas were closed or very, very mm. restricted, like Raya and the Last Dragon and Mulan. And now they're going to have, you know, they'll be able to do a like for like, you know, in a market like America, where most of the cinemas will be open and they have the most subscribers to Disney+. Plus. And they can just see which one which one works. I'm really hoping cinemas fall through in that that yeah. case. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. The one thing that's interesting here is that are Disney losing faith in Pixar because yet another Pixar film is just being shoved straight onto the free version of that platform. Luca is now coming straight to Disney Plus without the premium cost attached. That's a shame because I thought Soul was one of the best things they've done in years. I think they're they're working out what to do to retain subscribers so like if you're a marvel fan or you're okay you've got a, a whole half a year for full of marvel shows we're currently in the middle of winter soldier loki the series comes out afterwards but family audiences have either had to pony up for Raya and the last dragon or wait for it to go free and, and i think they want to give something back to that sort of family audience and maybe luca was just like the thing that was ready and you know it, they, they're sort of saying it, it'll retain our family audience which is worth more than what it will make at the box office ladies and gentlemen your projectionist tonight is eric, eric. 
Time to turn the spotlight onto our guest this week, Sam Clements. Sam is the creator and host of the fantastic 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest podcast. It is a podcast that celebrates films with a running time of 90 minutes or less. The podcast has been going since September 2018 and has had fantastic guests such as Joe Cornish, Nick Helm and Tuppence Middleton. Over to you, Breen. Hey, Sam. Thanks so much for coming on. So let's nice start with a question we tend to start with everybody. What started your love of film and do you remember the first film you saw and maybe which cinema you watched it in? I do. My dad was responsible for my love of cinema just because we would, I guess I would just watch all of his, like he's a big sci-fi nerd. So we had things like Star Wars, the early Star Trek films. I probably had like Terminator 2 and Aliens, which I probably shouldn't have watched at such a young age, but did. But I, I remember going, getting into films through kind of his taste in movies and watching like those VHS cassettes that we'd have stored underneath the TV in the big television unit. So that was like the first time I was like interested in films that beyond like being a kid and watching usual sort of cartoon stuff. Then that was maintained by like regular Saturday visits to the showcase Avon Meads in Bristol, driving down, probably get like a Burger King or a McDonald's on the way back, uh, watching things like Good Burger, Dragonheart, uh, all of those like 90s uh, sort of movies. And we would just kind of watch whatever was on. So I've got my dad to thank for my obsession with film. And then I, I realized that actually you could like study film in media studies classes and film studies classes. I got to the point where when I was like, a late teenager, I took an evening class in film studies because my college didn't offer it. So I was like really, really into film at the time, opting to take, take you know, like extra lessons in it. Mm. And I just loved it. I just loved watching films and discovering this huge world out there. And it was, uh, yeah, it was really good fun. In terms of my first cinema visit, I can't remember which one came out first, but it was either the Flintstones movie or The Lion wow. King, the yeah. live action Flintstones movie from the 90s or, or The Lion King. And <laughs> that would have been like, I just didn't go. I didn't go when I was super young. I would have been like six when both of those films came out. Right. So it was like, finally, I get to go to the cinema. All the things my friends keep talking about. And yeah, so whichever one of those came out first was, was my first visit. Nice. Yeah, you're a big fan of just films in general. But what was the attraction of films of the running time of under 90 minutes that sort of led to you? creating your fab podcast uh i think it was partially due to the day job and like actually it's quite tricky to schedule in a load of films when it's like oh this one's an hour and 28 minutes long and this one's two hours and 14 minutes and then you have to allow ads and trailers and the ad packs are all going to be different lengths <laughs> um and it's it's quite a rigmarole especially if you're doing multiple screens at a venue and I, I went to a few comedy festivals where everybody did a 60 minute set. I was like, God, if every film was the same length, like it's so easy to program the comedy festival because all of the comedians go in at two o'clock and then they come out at three o'clock and then there's a 3.30 round and you all go in at 3.30, you come out at 4.30 and it was so easy and they were doing that across a whole town, you know, like in Edinburgh, like doing it across a whole town and everybody's doing an hour long set. So it's like if every film was a uniform length, scheduling <laughs> this festival would be really easy so it came from a position of admin uh, there it's <laughs> not the answer i was expecting <laughs> but i think as cinema you know like with our day jobs cinema managers people who time up films you would totally it would be so much easier if everything was the same length <laughs> yeah very <laughs> to be true. a dreamy thing to program and then um i mean that that, that was sort of what got us talking about it but uh, i think sort of that coupled with every night when i get home from work I always, I just want to watch more films and I, I spend like up to an hour probably going through all the runtimes of things on Netflix and, and on my black, like the Blu-rays, which is ironic because I could have watched a four hour long film probably that evening. I would always be searching for what I could fit in after work and it was always the short films. And I think a lot of people share that, especially, you know, if you just want to try and sneak a film in, it's good to have a few short films up your sleeve uh, there. So I just thought we'd celebrate these films, which allow us to watch a movie when time is of the essence. That's fantastic. So you, you have a really great range of guests, as we've mentioned on your podcast. How do you decide who you'd like to come on and, and how easy or difficult is it to get them to come on? It's a mixed bag. I mean, I think we this is a this podcast is done for fun. So we want making the podcast to be fun. And, and a large portion of it is the guests. So on our show, I have no say in what we watch other than it has to be under 90 minutes long. It's totally curated by the guests on our program. We've made over 60 shows now. So I've got 60 recommendations from all sorts of people. And they're all people whose opinions I trust. And I think that's how we, we choose. Like, I'd be fascinated to know what X would like to program into this 
fictional under 90 minute long film festival. And we just kind of reach out there, really. Some are people we know and, and people who I'm friends with. Some are people whose work I admire. And I thought, you know, there's no harm in reaching out and 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 kind of everything in between, really, which is why we've had such a, a broad range of guests. Like for a film podcast, we've had like three or four chefs, but they're people whose work I like or, or people whose, you know, like I like their output on social media. Uh, they're like Tim Anderson came on early on, who runs a restaurant that I really love, who won MasterChef a few years ago and chose My Neighbor Totoro. And it was just amazing to hear a chef talk about a Studio Ghibli film, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then more recently, we've had a run of people who make podcasts, like Griffin Newman from Blank Check and Chris Broad from Abroad in Japan, Al Horner from Script Apart. And I just really loved listening to their shows. And they're all shows I really doubled down on during lockdown. So I've been sort of trying to reach out to those those hosts for the last few months and and i think people who've said yes they say yes because they love short films as well it's a universal thing for film fans like a good under 90 minute is a bit of a sweet spot i think for a movie nerd it may be that it's the very nature of your podcast that and the subject of it that is the thing that sets you apart but in sort of in a vastly expanding podcast market how did you go about setting yourself apart from the pack i mean there are there are so many podcasts and there's so many film podcasts but that's because there's a lot of people who like listening to them and i think you know, I make the podcast with my wife, Louise, and we we were really excited by an under 90 minute movie podcast. We searched through iTunes, couldn't see any. Quite a few football podcasts with 90 minutes in the title, but <laughs> no movie podcasts. And we thought this feels like a bit of a niche. And I think podcasts are really good at sort of filling out the niche. It doesn't mean your podcast is going to be super huge and, and topping the iTunes charts, but it does mean that you could reach out to like-minded movie fans uh, there. So we thought if we just like, you know, put our flag in the sand, declare our love our undying love for the under 90 minute film art and we'll just sort of see who comes and and we have we have found our people like it, it's it's kind of nuts and i love that though it's such a nerdy thing to talk about to like not talk about the craft or the talent involved but the runtime and it, it does sort of start a very particular conversation which i enjoy having so obviously 90 minutes is your thing that's your your bag but do you have a film a favorite film that falls outside that 90 minute category so a longer film than 90 minutes i think anything that i really love i'll make a podcast about so the other podcast that i've sort of been making very slowly is a, a podcast about the nancy myers 2006 christmas classic the holiday so to i don't know 2019 we launched the holiday season um, and we just did a couple of episodes over christmas and we did a couple more last year and it's a whole podcast dedicated to that one classic film, which I don't think critics necessarily enjoyed. And I think audiences are quite split by it whenever it's on ITV2 over Christmas. I, love I really film. love it. I think <laughs> so. it's a, you're it's a great you're one of the, the people who loves it. Jack Black is amazing in that movie. Jack Black is a very divisive character in the film, his character of Miles. A lot of people hate him. A lot of people love him. How can you hate him? People think he's a bit creepy, but over familiar with Kate. He He's sort of, I think his relationship with Shannon Sossaman is, is a bit mm. problematic uh, at the time. I, I don't quite know whether he's totally done with her before he starts to come on to kate their boob graze is a classic moment in the film which divides people also so yeah i think i think i think he's he's a he's a bit split down the middle i also don't think he's right for the character of iris he's convenient it'll be a nice fling i had they have no future together uh, wow that couple whereas the other couple jude law cameron diaz definitely they've they've got something you've, there. Um, um, you've really looked into this haven't you <laughs> I mean, I spent I spent hours, hours and hours and hours talking to people who were either involved in the film or who also loved the film uh, for that show. So the holiday, I guess, is my easy go to answer because I've literally made a podcast about it. And and I think we might do some more this Christmas. Um, who knows? It feels wrong making the holiday podcast over summer. So we've just kept it for the uh, imminent Christmas period. <laughs> it makes sense. It's a nice listen. But it, it is over two hours long as well. So it's something I could never cover on the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. And in fact, the director Nancy Myers' films are all over 90 minutes long so i will never get to cover one of my favorite directors work uh, on that show so yeah i had to had to start another one i won't start keep starting podcast though i think that's it <laughs> <laughs> we liked to ask our guests about guilty pleasures it's a concept that really devises people is it a thing that you actually believe in we'll find out but what is your guilty pleasure a film that critics and audiences really just didn't get at all but you absolutely love it really resonates with you i mean so many it feels like i mean my my favorite genre might be what is called guilty pleasure i'm not guilty about them i think they're pleasurable i i love i love i love rom-coms like my love for the holiday 
which a lot of people might call a guilty pleasure. So many rom-coms are, are sort of called guilty pleasures. Like, uh, you know, and, and probably like, I don't know, every rom-com. <laughs> Recently, there was a film that came out called The Broken Hearts mm. Gallery, which had a very limited release in that time where cinemas were open. And I, I didn't really see many people talk about it. It's a very sweet, a little bit cheesy, but it's, it's got a good good nature to it. So uh, yeah, I love that. But my, my biggest, I guess, guilty pleasure is probably the Christina Aguilera share film, Burlesque, which is such wow. a hoot. <laughs> came out in 2009, I believe. It sort of did its thing at the box office, came and went, didn't bother anybody really. Uh, the director has never gone on to make another feature film. Cher has had a lovely time afterwards, though she got cast in Mamma Mia 2. Christina Aguilera, I think, is still singing. It didn't it didn't destroy their careers, but it also didn't really change anybody's you know uh, career paths dramatically. It's got Stanley Tucci in, it's got Kristen Bell uh, you know, doing a thing. Um, that's a great film. Like Again, it's silly. But if you go in knowing what to expect, I think you'll have a good time. Never even heard of it. Wow. What? <laughs> it's an absolute banger. Okay, nice. Uh, I I love it. It's a musical. It's weirdly about property. Cher <laughs> um, needs to sell the club because not enough people are coming to it, and uh, a big big time property developer wants to swoop in. Nice. I mean, absolute banger. It is not. Um, <laughs> no, <that's... laughs> you you have wildly oversold that film. What, a five-star masterpiece? I don't think so. Perfectly hits the brief for the question. Okay. And uh, yeah, Boob Grace is going to be the name of my difficult third album. So, So here we go then to our in review section and two films this week picked by me. So let's start with Netflix's Netflix's Netfly. What's the plural of Netflix? Netfly. Netflix I. Netflix I. <laughs> so I'm going to start with the Netflix 2019 release of American Factory. For a year and a half, I didn't have anything. We lost our home. We lost a vehicle. I have struggled to get back to middle class again. This is a historic project that is going to help grow this community, give people jobs, and give a future to your kids and my kids. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. We hope someday to get this good. There have been 11 complaints filed. Some workers claim unsafe working conditions and unfair treatment. This was directed by Stephen Bogner and Julia Reichart. It's a story centers around a GM factory in post-industrial Ohio. A Chinese billionaire takes over this now derelict factory hiring 2,000 Americans. Early days of hope and optimism give way to setbacks as high-tech China clashes with working-class America. I thought the filmmaking was absolutely superb. There were scenes where the, the focus on the faces, particularly during the Fu Yao recruitment day, was incredible. The mix of, you could see excitement, optimism, but then also skepticism and fear. And there was the look, it, they just captured that perfectly. Where some people just like, obviously saw this ray of light and other people were just like, yeah, we're being sold down the river a little bit here. I think the filmmakers did an exceptional job of, of making all that emotion pull through the screen. There were so many striking narratives that play all the way through this. The haves and the have-nots, the different work ethics, the initial warmth between the chairman and his cronies that quickly became very frosty and aggressive. You know, I did take it with a pinch of salt in some ways. I think it was delivered with a, with a fair whack of bias. But I think if you live in the Rust Belt, as it's called, and you know, you, you're submerged in that, I don't know whether some of the filmmaking was particularly fair in, in the way it was delivered. But I think it is what it is. I think in some parts it felt oddly amusing, where the Chinese supervisors blame the Americans' fat fingers for being too slow, and the devastating realism where workers are being openly bullied and harassed to the point of either quitting or just being fired for arbitrary reasons. Uh, I found this absolutely fascinating. I thought it was a great piece of documentary storytelling. Why did you choose the film? I was it was a, it's quite an interesting set of films this week. But I remember this film coming out in was it 2019? I didn't really bother the, a lot of the sort of film criticism at the time. How did you pick this one, Ben? Just because during lockdown, I've just been trying to catch up on a lot of document documentaries. Is, is by far my favourite genre. I'll watch docs all day long, and I, I just 
this has been on my radar because it won the Oscar in 2020 for best documentary feature. So I just, I wanted to get it watched and I thought mm. an Oscar winning documentary should be on my watch list. That's all. Some pretty solid choice produced by the Obamas. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I was watching an interview with them and the makers of the film and I didn't realise that they lived nearby because that kind of makes sense. It feels like they kind of lucked upon this, this story as it unfolded. And yeah, I think all documentaries have bias by their nature Mm. because the filmmaker will whether consciously or subconsciously that will be ingrained into the narrative that they're building but i did feel that it it was quite even-handed and i was quite surprised at some of the footage they managed to capture especially when they went to china i was surprised Mm -hmm. that they got a lot of that stuff there because it's quite a closed off you know almost borderline communist society and there are a lot of practices over there which they were allowed to film and i was quite amazed like the the sort of the gm conference they were having blew my mind with all the people getting married and stuff that was absolutely crazy i can't believe they got that footage but yeah i love this documentary i thought it was absolutely incredible i thought they picked some really good central characters who you follow being really excited really buzzed really fused to be working again following that process through sort of saying especially the woman who's like i used to be middle class i used to have my own house then you see her she's like she's lost her job she's living in a basement then she gets this new job she's excited she can buy her own flat and then the next time we see her she's like in the picket line she goes yeah i got fired and now i'm trying to join the union i got the phone call from fugiao that they had fired me i really truly feel like that that they targeted me I was on the news, I was at the city council meetings. It's been a pretty sad few days. This sinking feeling of, I don't have a job. I mean, I'm a good worker. Should I have gotten so involved? Put my whole life into it? It was really interesting slice of what unions or how unions sort of start and how companies try and and sort of break them apart. So it it was interesting seeing that sort of perspective, seeing both sides of the story. Yeah, I thought it was a fascinating documentary, really good pick, Hammond. I had a different experience. I don't think it was a bad documentary. I think my issue was the bias. It, It smacked to me of China bad, America good. And it wasn't as simpler than that it's not, it was too simplistic an approach there were some some bad chinese people there were some really stupid american people and the balance of the doc for me just didn't see it wasn't documenting what was happening it was trying to tell you that it was skewing what you were seeing don't get me wrong the practices that were being employed by the people at the top from the company were deplorable right. well, good afternoon everyone thank you so much for coming i know you didn't have a choice the union will go out of their way and try to convince you that it's a good thing for you and that it is in your best interest. You can't get fired for going on strike, but you can get permanently replaced. So are you telling us not to vote for the, uh, the union? I'm here to tell you to do what you want. Who you work for? I work for a company called Labor Relations Institute. We're a labor consulting company. Is the company paying you? Yes. Yes. Didn't I, say that? I usually say that in every meeting. No, you didn't. No, you didn't say that yet. Well, the reality is, they pay me. They're paying consultants in here. Um, they pay me, they don't pay me nothing. And it was the disgrace of the way that pe- people were actually handled. There were some, some wonderful things in there. I, I noted a few things down. I mean, talking about the, the some American stupid. We're talking about the, the visit by the, the main people to go to China, to the main factory, to see how it was done. They go into that first board meeting. Everybody's wearing suits. The Americans walk in. One of them wearing a Jaws t-shirt. Perfect attire for, for the first meeting with, uh, with people who actually pay you your wages. I thought the corporate song was really creepy. They have stop every day and sing the corporate song. That was really, really creepy. But my issues with it were based around the bias and it it, it didn't present quite the message that I was hoping it was to. I, I wanted it to produce a message of concentrating on those smaller cats, some of those, the, the Chinese employees that were away from their families for two years in a foreign country, which the language they didn't really speak until they got there. I wanted to know more about them. They were lovely people. They were wonderful people that wanted to help everybody on the shop floor and they really wanted everybody to do well and really be productive and, and produce things and were willing to make that sacrifice away from their families. We got glimpses of that, but then it went, here's the tyrant at the top and this is the oppression that everybody's feeling. I, I wanted more from lower down, having that interactions and, and the relationships and how those dynamics changed as a result of the the problems that were happening further up if that makes sense yeah but yeah so it was a good it was a good documentary i i'm i would be interested to see what the other documentaries were that were nominated for the oscar that year uh, and i'd like to watch those 
to see whether I agree with that was the the best of the bunch because it I if I didn't know it I wouldn't have thought that that would have won an Oscar. Interesting. I yeah I I I saw this when it came out to much um I think everyone I was you know whenever something new goes up I usually try and check it out so I, I watched like a bit of it again but I remember not really liking it so much at the time and I think what my problem was it just ran out of steam. It's almost two hours long. You know, I'd love an under 90 minute film. Uh, so <laughs> there was that. But I, I just think the story maybe didn't warrant being almost two hours there. I think there's some really good stuff at the beginning. I was hooked. But after an hour or so, I was kind of ready for them to wrap up or move on to something else. Uh, it feels like a lot of the same mm. there. And I wonder if maybe it'd be better as a like a limited yep. series or, or an ongoing series, you know, about working conditions in different sort of factories. There, there's something there like it's amazing access an amazing story i don't know if an almost two hour long feature film was the right way to tell it yeah so the the makers they were documenting the closure of the factory so they created a documentary short so the scene you see where the last car's going down a production line it says this is the end or something that oh. was taken from their short documentary they did previously so actually probably the first 10 minutes or so of this was from stuff they'd already already produced and was out there and then i think they just wanted to to continue that on but yeah i think you're right i think maybe they just ran out of a few ideas like even the guy at the end on 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 his farm where he was really trying to integrate he made some fantastic friends and he said yeah i got fired because i tried to use a computer and it took me 60 seconds and that they didn't didn't follow through on that it was just like that that was the end of his story yeah oh yeah mm. they they yeah. probably looped yeah. a lot of things that they could have gone through and didn't quite uncover more of the things they could have done the, i've got the list for the nominees for that year so it was the cave the edge of democracy for sama and honeyland were the other nominees that year where this one best feature go and seek those out and watch those i think i didn't walk away from it thinking china bad america good i definitely walked away from it more thinking corporation bad people good i didn't necessarily think it was damning chinese culture in fact i think it celebrated that bit where the Hmm. the group go over there and one of them just gets really emotional going like this is like he's just overwhelmed by it i mean he's probably smashed as well because they were drinking a lot of booze but I felt that he was he was really they were really trying hard to integrate themselves and some of them did make firm friends and there was a bit of a celebration there of those different cultures and those cultures clashing. I didn't necessarily get a sense that China would, was the problem here. It was more union busting, corporations being quite heavy handed. Yeah, I don't think it opened my eyes to Chinese culture. You know, these guys say they work twelve to fourteen hour days, six days a week, and on top of that, overtime is mandatory. Whereas they come mm. to America and it's like, if you want me to do more than an eight-hour shift, it has to go through the union. I was, I was absolutely, I think the most shocked I was was the captions at the end where it said union busting is now a multi-million dollar industry in the US. That's absolutely frightening. Particularly when you see that shot of that woman who was a, it was a two-man job and she wanted to join the union and all of a sudden her job became a one-man job. But she's surrounded by a ring of people doing the same job in pairs because it's heavy lifting and they, they clearly are literally trying to break her back to get her out of that factory. And it was, it was frightening, absolutely frightening. Yeah. There we go. So moving on then to my second pick, which was Creation Stories, released this year on Sky Cinema slash Now TV. Who is Alan Let's rewind. I'm going to be a millionaire one day. Thank you, Blasco. Good night. Have you got your sister's makeup on? If I say much as here, you mention those sexy pistols. You wish you were never born. You look ridiculous. Have you ever even been to London? Do you know anyone there? No, I can be whatever I want to be in London. It's good to have a dream. Are you sure about him? We need more dreamers in this family. Do you have any more bands on your label? I knew we could take over the world. Directed by Nick Moran, starring Ewan Bremner, this is the story of Alan McGee, the former head and founder of Creation Records, a written-off Glaswegian upstart who rose to irrevocably change the face of British culture. Thoughts on this? Yeah, this isn't very good, is it? No, Uh, it's really not. (laughs) I mean, it's a shame because... This is clearly a very engaging story. This guy is just genius, a drug addict, a genius who's someone at the the zeitgeist of Britpop. He made some very smart choices in terms of, of seeing those bands and knowing who to sign. But it just made me think of other films that have the same sort of subject matter that do it so much better, like Good Vibrations, Sing Street and 24 Hour Party People, which for me is the 
the pinnacle of sort of label mm. a Tony Wilson story is like one of my favorite films of all time. Like the bit where Ewan Bremner's Alan McGee goes to the, the Hacienda and Manchester in particular, maybe wish that Steve Coogan playing uh, Tony Wilson would just burst in and we'd then follow him and, and we'd be back in, in that world. <laughs> it just felt a bit amateurish in places. Some of the dialogue was rushed yeah. and, and messy. A lot of McGee's childhood teenager stuff was handled so broadly that we didn't really get a sense of the impact of an abusive father. And it didn't help that uh, the guy playing his father, Richard Jobson, he has a tan. He has a really atrocious tan. It really distracted me thinking like, no, you're from working class, you know, whatever. You wouldn't have a tan like that. The drug scene in particular mm. in the LA hotel, I mean, talk about cliched. We've all seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Just uh, every single conceivable obvious choice was made to sort of show that he was having a bit of a train spotting moment. And yeah, I think the main performance was amazing. I think he did a really good job with some pretty shocking material, but it, you know, it just made me want to watch him in, in train spotting. So yeah, I, I really didn't get on with it. How did you guys get on? I mean, I, I thought I was watching train spotting three Spud goes to Hollywood. That's exactly <laughs> what this felt like to me. I really, really wanted more and it felt like it was so rushed and vital parts of the music scene. I mean, this covered almost two decades of world changing music and it and it just it didn't we hardly touch on any of that i messaged you guys because i thought my tv was broken the sound mix was horrific and i don't think the intentional mixing down of the vocals to a point where you feel like you're in a nightclub toilet did anything to the film the framing device was lazy and made little sense it's an interview that spans his whole career that provides 90 percent of the narrative then at the end, it's explained away when she says, oh, it's a puff piece and it's going to be mainly photos. So, so what have I been listening to then for the last two hours? I, I don't understand. Suki Waterhouse, who played Gemma, was terrible. She was almost laughably bad. Overall, I was left feeling frustrated and feel like I really didn't gain much more knowledge than when I, when I started watching this. I thought it was a dreadful piece of filmmaking. The music was good. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's such a fantastic record label mm. with some unbelievable artists signed to it and whilst yes of course it's his story it like you said it just didn't it didn't dwell on the important things it was oh right, oh, right so he's got oasis now right that's done uh, in 20 seconds uh in the back room of a pub that may have been the way the, the deal happened you know the way he came across them but i'm sorry the reason the film's been made is because of his association with oasis and that's what made, really made his label so there should have been at least a proportional chunk of that film devoted to to that period because that's what really sent the label into a real proper stratosphere at least the central performance fantastic it, it's always going to be great value on screen he, he he really knows what he's doing he knows his craft yeah but it was the script was all over the place it didn't I mean, his life may have been all over the place, but you still need a coherent script to be able to <laughs> to explain that. The bailiffs? Oh, no, 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 no. We've got a band called the bailiffs. No, 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 no. Sorry, boys. Just the point in New York wasn't ideal. Got a band that going to be bigger than you too. Unbelievable. Like you said, really frustrating couple of hours of a story that I really, really actually wanted to know more about, which I didn't get at the end of it. I don't think I came away knowing really any more than I did going in. Uh, yeah, I think this is a severely lacking film. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I was sort of wondering why you guys were putting me through this um, <laughs> halfway through the film when I was watching it. I, it's just bad, isn't it? Like it's badly, badly. It doesn't. It's badly judged. I think. I think it wants to try and be like train spotting, uh, like Ben was saying. And and Danny Boyle was an exec producer on it, or was involved somehow. I wonder if it was once oh. a Danny Boyle project, which got sort of passed on to uh, the B team, uh, as it were, <laughs> uh, there. And like maybe you could do something good with Ewan Bremner, a great actor. I've rewatched him in Wonder Woman recently. Very good. <laughs> I I just, yeah, I think this story probably warranted a, a just a better caliber of filmmaking and better script, better producers, better director. And, and we did not get that <laughs> um, there. I thought it was... It, I just thought it was a slog. You know, mm. it's not a very long film. It is over 90 minutes, but it's not much more than 90 minutes. And, and it felt <laughs> it like felt a lifetime. Lovely. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched the Snyder Cut and then this. And honestly, <laughs> this felt this felt longer than the Snyder Cut. It was... <laughs> oh, it, was like I was, it was like I was crawling over broken glass to get to the end of it. And it's a real shame. I mean, yeah, I mean, Breen, you're absolutely right. It's, he w went into an underground nightclub and discovered Acid House. Yeah, yeah. Great. That, that's it. Done. Yeah. Well, okay. So, what about all the stuff that Creation Records released yeah. with the Acid yeah. House scene? Yeah. Oh, I, you know, I I essentially founded Primal Scream with my friends. 
but that's gonna that's gonna be a twenty second scene when I say fuck. I'm not joining you because you're a crackhead mm-hmm. and move on. Yeah. I don't. It, it, it just all went past in a bling, yeah. but focused on some really. Sh- oh, sorry, lads. I thought I nailed it to you. I thought I was too yeah, so. it's, it's this is a man <laughs> who is such a giant figure in the music industry. It's weird that this has just been turfed out and it isn't being. This should be a big big deal and it isn't at all and there's so many stories you read about the production of the first oasis album like why didn't we hear any of that stuff like it, it's yeah, yeah it's it's such a shame wow sorry guys <laughs> tried over promised and under delivered story of my life I download your podcast i sync it up Moving on then to our in-scene question. And this is inspired by Sam's 90 Minutes Film Fest podcast. And I would like to know, what is your favourite film with a 90 minutes or less running time? So I went, uh, I listened to all the episodes uh, of your podcast, Sam, and went back to look at all the list of all the films that have been discussed. And obviously there's some great films on there. I could have chosen Spinal Tap. I could have chosen Stand By Me. It would have been perfect, perfect examples. And I could talk about those films at length. But I wanted to go for something that hadn't been discussed on your podcast as well. So I've gone back to 1955. It's an era of science fiction movies that I absolutely adore with things like Forbidden Planet and things like that. Forbidden Planet's too long for this question, sadly. So I've gone for a film called This Island Earth from 1955 that stars Vic Morrow. Now, I was really young when I sort of got into these films. They were on TV and I just got into that into that period, like I say, with Forbidden Planet. This Island Earth really got to me and I, I really liked the story of the thing. The premise basically is there's a scientist working on very advanced physics and, and chemistry who gets delivered a, what is ostensibly is a Maplin's catalogue of component parts and, and really weird and strange devices on this really weird paper that they've never seen before. It looks and feels very different to, to regular paper for devices that seem to be so far advanced and but there's no return address they don't know where it's come from and boxes get delivered and they create this device and it turns out to be a communication device that is designed to attract the, the most skillful and intelligent scientists only they can actually create it and it's and it allows them to be invited to help with a, a high level project amongst a core group of really the top end scientists you have successfully accomplished your task dr meacham You've assembled an interocitor, a feat of which few men are capable. Who are you? I'm called Exeter. I'm a scientist like yourself. Shall we say, uh, a colleague? My colleagues don't materialize out of strange machines. They're flesh and blood. And so am I, Dr. Meacham, as I hope you'll soon find out. Although I admit at the moment I do appear immaterial. But no matter. I represent a group which is seeking scientists of exceptional ability. All prospects must pass an aptitude test, which you've just done. I'm flattered. Only I don't remember applying for any job. You didn't. We test out people without their knowledge. We leave nothing to chance. And you find out ultimately that it's actually it's an alien race that have come to Earth to try and find help in creating this force field around their planet that's being attacked by this, this other race. It is a wonderful piece of 50s science fiction, if you like that type of thing. The special effects for that uh, that, that period of time were sort of equivalent, really, to the Forbidden Planet stuff, which was real high-end stuff. The Earth, sh- the shot of the Earth that they use in the film was actually used by Universal as their opening... Oh, cool. <laughs> Yeah, the world logo for between yeah. 1950 and 1980s. It was that that shot was actually was one that they used, which they then had the word Universal put in front of it. Again, you have to sort of take the special effects to certain extent with a pinch of salt. It's the 1950s, so you, you know you have to have that nostalgia sort of thing built in, really, to to enjoy it rather than just laugh at it. It looks funny when you look at it by today's standards, but there's a heart and a charm in that film that that is i think i think is wonderful so yeah so this island earth from 1955 one hour 26 minutes of absolute joy thoroughly recommend it wow i've never even heard of that no that's a good that's a good suggestion no none of the 60 guests have have put that on a short list either so um yeah that's a that's a safe one to select (laughs) okay so for this i'm going with my favorite comedy of the last 10 years the severely underrated and underseen pop star never stop never stopping from 2016 it oh, is great absolutely film. amazing. It's so Such good. Such a good movie. This is the film that was made by Adam Sandberg and the Lonely Island crew. The comedy band have put out things like I've Just Had Sex and I'm on a Boat. They've got huge, huge followings on YouTube. So it was a no-brainer. The Universal would give him $20 million to make their own project. And it just absolutely flopped. It barely made $9 million in the US. It didn't even... I think it got a release in the UK, but again, just absolutely tossed out. I managed to catch a, a showing of it 
at the Panton Street Odeon and there was probably about four people in the screen. Never good when films open at the Odeon Panton Street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's absolutely incredible. So Sam Berg plays a fictitious pop star, Connor For Real, who was part of the boy band, The Style Boys, but has turned solo, sort of like a, a spin-off of NSYNC and Justin Timberlake, who coincidentally is in the film and plays his chef, which is a really lovely touch. So it just from the moment that it opens with the pop song Humble, which is an amazing pop song, but you know, bragging about how humble Sandberg's character is. And then it goes on to a series of genuine music stars talking about how much they love him and, and how much they like he has influenced them as musicians. And it's got this amazing clip from Mariah Carey. It's kind of bar none, I am the most humble list. Number one at the top of the humble list. My apple crumble is by far the most crumble list, but I act like it tastes bad at a humble list. I've got it all, and I'm getting more, but I never fall, be more, cause you know I'm so humble. I say that with no ego. I'm so I'm so humble, I instantly connected with that because I'm probably the most humble person that I know. And it never stops. It's absolutely incredible. I, everyone who is, anyone who's not seen this film, I just like, I recommend it like 100%. 87 minutes long. It's just in and out. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. That so, is yeah, pop star, never such, stop, never stop. Such a good choice. Such a good I, choice. I have the soundtrack album on my phone. Oh, nice. Because <laughs> uh, it's got loads of clips of dialogue from the film as well. Yeah. And a couple of the songs that you only hear. 30 second burst of you get the full full version of the songs it's a fantastic film laugh out loud funny yeah so good agreed that one that one it's a proper classic i it hasn't come up on the podcast yet but it has been on people's shortlists and we have had the lonely islands first film hot rod Mm. um which is an amazing Uh movie uh on an episode last year with chris hewitt awesome so i think the mark of a truly exceptional film is one that you can watch over and over again like Pop star, never stop, never stopping. A film of a runtime of less than 90 minutes that had it appeared on episode one of Sam's podcast, there would be no need for the subsequent 59 episodes. <laughs> FYI, this one was picked on episode 24 with Caitlin Benedict from 2014, officially clocking in at 86 minutes. I have What We Do in the Shadows, an uh, absolute masterclass in comedy, which brilliant. follows three vampire housemates trying to navigate the complexities of living in modern day New Zealand, encountering werewolves, the beast, and befriending a hipster and his mate, an IT guy named Stu. This film for me is probably the standout comedy of my life. I love the comedy genre, but this for me, there was nothing like it before, and I don't think there's been much like it since. So it's 6 p.m. in the nighttime, which is when I wake up. This is always a really scary part for me. Yes! Nighttime. So now I'm going to wake up my flatmates. I really love living in a flatting situation. Wake up! Wake up, everyone! I like to hang out with other vampires. I like the company. Awaken! Awakey, wakey! I just really like having a good time with my friends. Speaking. I believe that not much of it was scripted, even though the script was nine years in the writing. You can just see how much fun these guys had writing the script and kind of just using that as a loose guideline and just making the film. It feels like a genuine passion project. I adore it. If I switch on film four and there's only seven minutes to go of this, I will watch that last seven minutes and then start it over again. So yeah, that's my pick. Yeah, it's a really timeless film. Have you watched the TV series? No, I really want to. It's been the two, Ooh, two, no, two, two, yeah, it's, no. it's excellent. No, Taika Waititi is involved. The, 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 he actually directed a couple of episodes as well. It's actually really, really good. Sam? Uh, I don't ever get to choose an under 90 minute film on our podcast because the format is all about the guests. Mm. Um, but there are a few films which I'm sort of secretly hoping people will choose. I think Popstar probably falls into that category as well. But uh, for me, I really want someone to choose a film that came out a couple of years ago called Teen Titans Go to the Movies, which is a TV series <laughs> about cartoon versions of the Justice League uh, that we talked about and all of the other DC characters as Batman, Superman, Harley Quinn, Cyborg, etc., etc., and loads of sort of weird characters that maybe haven't made a live action uh, sort of screen debut, but they're in the comics. You guys are awfully immature for the Justice League. Do we look like the Justice League to you? I don't know. I thought you were maybe some of the lesser known members. Man, we ain't no Justice League. League. I recognize you now. You are the Guardians of the Galaxy! Uh, that's a different superhero universe. Yo, Sai, this guy don't know who he is. 
Oh, really? Then I think it's time we tell him. I've never really seen the cartoon. I know the animation style. It's very distinct. It's a 2D animation. Looks, you know, it's very child-friendly. Looks a bit like Dexter's Lab or the Powerpuff Girls. The film, however, is so funny. I think it's one of the best superhero films in recent years. You know, it's quite a saturated market. Lots of very serious superhero films. No one's making superhero comedy musicals, which is what Teen Titans go to the movie is. And it's very self-aware. They are aware that they are making a movie within the film. And they reference the TV show, which I think all you have to know is that there is also a TV show version of it. But I went in only watching this film and really liking, you know, superhero films. And I love that it can poke fun at itself about kind of crossing the line that I think Deadpool and Deadpool 2 do sometimes a little bit, maybe a bit too self-indulgent. The indulgence is here, but it's it's some very good-natured indulgence. And I loved it. And the songs are actually good. Like, it's, it's, a, it's just a world-class musical, which I think has been sidelined because it's a kid's film, yeah, uh, primarily. And I haven't really seen too many critics, you know, kind of go out and bat for it. But it has a fan base bit of a cult following and i would love a guest to pick that film add it to our festival it got really good reviews when it came out i really want to see it i've heard it's really funny it's so good i had such a good time watching it and i'm surprised because we've on the show we've interviewed a lot of people who are sort of known fans of superhero films or people who've even hosted superhero podcasts and they've gone for something totally different nothing superhero related and i think this is one of the few superhero films that is even under 90 minutes so it might be picked one day i'm hoping it will be Let's go again! He does not get it! That's everything then, apart from we need to know what we're watching for the next episode. And Mercer, that's over to you. Right, so straight in with the Adam Sandberg theme continuing. Uh, Palm Springs is something I've been waiting to watch for a long time since I first heard about it uh, last year. So this is Adam Sandberg plays someone who's stuck in a time loop. Two wedding guests develop a budding romance while living the same day over and over again. So this drops on Amazon Prime on the 9th of April. So yeah, that looks really good. And the other one I'm going for is dropping on Netflix on the 2nd of April and stars Edris Elba called Concrete Cowboy. Sent to live with his estranged father for the summer, a rebellious teen finds kinship in a tight-knit Philadelphia community of black cowboys. I'm very excited for Palm Springs. Um, so yeah, I look forward to hearing what you guys think of it. Yeah, looking forward to those. Right, so all that's left for me then is to pose this week's question. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, I rewatched the original indie trilogy. And as it's close to Easter, let's talk Easter eggs. And what I want to know is, what is the name of the club that Indy escapes from at the start of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Easy. <laughs> I've, I've, I've breened it. You've breened it. <laughs> Bring the social media I'll pull back. The <laughs> Mercer, Breen, pleasure as always. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to speak to you and I look forward to the next few episodes of 90 Minutes or Less. That's it from me. It's over to you guys. Cool. So yes, yeah, Sam, as just to echo that, thank you so much for coming on and uh, everybody out there listening, thank you for listening. Please be good. And if you can't be good, be careful. Please be safe, be healthy, and we will speak to you again soon. Thanks everyone for listening, Sam. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been absolutely amazing. If people listening at home have made it this far, then you are once half closer to watching the Snyder Cut in, <laughs> in approximation. Yeah, if you want to catch up with us on social media, then please, please do. I really need the friends. So on Facebook and Instagram, it's forward slash seeing this pod, seeing spelled S-C-E-N-E. And on Twitter, we are forward slash seeing this underscore pod. And we also have an email address, which is seeing this pod at gmail.com. Drop us a line, get involved with a question when we post that. It's a very easy one this week. So yeah, you don't win a prize, but glory is yours when we read out your answer on the pod. See you all, all in the next episode. Cool. Thanks for having me, guys. It's been really fun to uh, fun to chat and I will be tuning in to your Palm Springs episode. That's it. We're done. You have been listening to Have You Seen This with Paul Breen, Ben Hammond and myself, Ben Mercer. The main theme is the Godzilla theme tune remixed by myself with beats supplied by Lander. Please like and subscribe if you've enjoyed the pod and please check us out on Facebook and Instagram forward slash seenthispod, scene spelled S-C-E-N-E. All views and opinions are those of their hosts. Just going off the back of that story about the guy uh, having fun during Skyfall. Easy. A year later, after a screening of Pacific Rim, I found in a screen when I was clearing it up a large Coke-sized cup full of warm urine. Oh.
That's the worst thing I've ever found on the screen. I was like, of all the films that you're like, I really need to stay in this film. The plot is absolutely intrinsic. I have to stay here and relieve myself. Oh, really? <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't lived, man. You haven't lived. You should spend a few shifts in some of the cinemas that yeah, I've managed. No. <laughs> all right, fair enough. Yeah, Amy, there's nothing that can come out of a human body that I haven't had to clear up in a screen. <laughs> what a claim to fame. <laughs> Ooh.